Hey, welcome to the Parker's Pensies podcast. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase. I've got a couple uh, graduate degrees in theology, and I'm working on another in philosophy of religion. And throughout my time in my studies, I've had a lot of awesome conversations with amazing people, but unfortunately, those conversations weren't recorded. And so the goal of this podcast is to have fascinating conversations about interesting ideas Uh, with experts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life, and then to record them and share them with you so that you learn as I learn. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode, I have with me Dr. Michael Glansberg. He is a professor of philosophy at Rutgers, and he teaches logic and philosophy of language. Those are his his specialties. He might teach other things as well, but those are his his, uh, emphases. And we're going to be talking about logic and truth and the liar's paradox, or the par- liar paradox, Epimenides paradox, some some of you might know. And that, that's just uh, this sentence that I'm saying is a lie. And um, some people think that's super pedantic, but it actually has a lot of ramifications for how we think about truth and logic. And so it's really fascinating. So stick around and you'll learn a lot about truth and logic. Um, before we jump in, though, I want to thank everyone over at Patreon, all my patrons. You guys are awesome. A bunch of you joined for I shouldn't say a bunch. A few of you joined for the uh, October book giveaway. So um, I'm going to be doing that in a couple days here. And we're going to be giving away some awesome books. As I talk with a lot of really cool guests, um, a lot of them are able to to send me their books. The publishers send me their books. And so I want to make it rain on you guys. I appreciate all the support that you give to me in the podcast and your comments on YouTube and your reviews. So uh, I want to give back. I love giving getting free books. And so I want to Uh, bless you guys with that as well. So I'll be doing book giveaways every month at the beginning of the month. So join my patron team, Patreon team, become a patron before the first of the month. So we'll have another one in in November as well. So um, if you guys like this podcast, please um, leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Please give this a like and leave me a comment because a lot of times the guests will come back and check uh, the comment section and they can see your questions be nice uh, because they do read these. But um, yeah, a lot of times they'll engage. So, so maybe you'll get that as well. All right. Without further ado, let's jump in on truth and logic. Dr. Glansberg, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me very much. Yeah, this is huge. Um, before we jump in, you are, how do you describe yourself? You, you, you do work in philosophy of language and logic. Um, are you a logician? Are you a philosopher, you know, generally construed who has particular interests? How do we think about you? Yeah, I guess um, I guess you can kind of say it either way. I mean, yeah, I, I have I'm a philosopher. I have some fairly broad interests, and amongst them is logic. Um, I guess that kind of makes me a logician. I, I've done some logic and continue to do some, so I think that makes me a logician. Um, but I'm in a philosophy department, and one thing that is worth saying is that logic as a field spans many different areas. You'll find people doing logic in math departments, computer science departments. Um, I'm in philosophy, right? And so I guess I'm a philosopher who's also a logician um, or something like that. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Um, well, how, how did you get into that field? How did you get into studying uh, logic in the first place? Yeah. So I started out in math and 
got hooked on logic as a math topic and then got drawn further and further into philosophy and then discovered I was a philosopher. <laughs> and then actually my interests in language kind of grew out of that. But now I spend a fair bit of time actually thinking about empirical things about language. I do some formal semantics and I've even gotten drawn into thinking a bit about cognitive science, um, which obviously connects to empirical issues about language. So it's a bit of a long path. I started out as like a pure math person. And now I don't think I am. Um, one of the nice things about philosophy is it allows you to like take that kind of path and still stay in the discipline. So yeah, that I definitely kind of value. Yeah, that is really, really cool. Um, it's so fascinating. I think we might talk about uh, math and language if, if we get to, to Donald Davidson a little bit. But yeah, um, as I learn more about like uh, cognitive science and computer science and philosophy of math and seeing there's a lot of uh, interconnections there. And then a lot of the computer science guys talk a lot about logics because they're trying to. And do you get to do you ever do you know any computer science folks? Do you, do you work with them at all? Do they come to you to talk about logic ever? Every now and again, um, and we have one person here at Rutgers who we work fairly closely with. Um, <laughs> computer science is sort of split, right? So the logic people are interested in, or rather the people who are interested in logic tend to be interested in some fairly abstract computation issues okay. or things like semantics of programming languages. Yeah. The people who are actually like finding algorithms to, you know, make better encryption or to, you know, better do better computer vision, they're not really likely to be logic people, though every now and again. So, I mean, yes, in certain cases. Um, and, you know, computer science and logic used to be much closer back in the days when computers were new. But, yeah. you know, it's an engineering field that's moved in its various directions. Yeah. Okay. That's, it's, yeah, it's so interesting. Um, well, as we get into to logic and truth today, um, the, it's really hard to summarize and everything, but can you just like, what, what is logic? Yeah, good. That's in some ways a really easy question. And in some ways a really, really hard one, <laughs> right? So the easy one is like logic shows you what logically follows from what. And so, you know, if I say it's cloudy and it's uh, Monday, it follows that it's cloudy and that's a logical connection. Mm -hmm. Um, and in a way, that's fairly easy, right? You know, we, we all kind of recognize when the truth of one thing follows from the truth of another. Right. And that's the core notion in logic. We call it logical consequence. Mm -hmm. Logical consequence is the relation that holds when one thing logically follows from another. But you'll notice, and this is a, a, a well-known issue in Foundations of Logic, there's a certain way in which I cheated. <laughs> so I said logically follows from another. Right. And you asked me what logic was. Mm -hmm. And I did kind of cheat there, and that's, a very, that's where the question gets hard. Because mm -hmm. there are lots of ways one thing can follow from another. One is that, you know, maybe there's a probabilistic relation. Maybe the probability of one is determined by the other. That's not typically what we're after in logic. Yeah. Maybe humans just like to draw that conclusion, whether it's sort of really good or not. That's definitely not what we're up to in logic. Mm -hmm. So we struggle a bit. Um, in foundations of logic to try and characterize just what the relation is that makes it logic. But it's something like absolutely guaranteed truth preservation. Mm. Um, so that thing about that little inference I gave you, it's sort of conjunction elimination, right? If it's, if it's 
cloudy and it's Monday, then you're absolutely guaranteed from the truth of those two things that it's cloudy. <laughs> yeah. That's the kind of relation we're after. Okay. Truth preservation in the strongest sense. Truth preservation. I like that. I, um, I, I got into just um, fundamental, you know, just a, a introduction to logic books and um, a, a couple years back. And uh, I think I picked up maybe Harry Gensler's book and, and a few others. And I really like the idea of being a logician. I even like that, that word. It sounds awesome. It sounds like magician or something. It's really cool. So some of us think you guys are really awesome. But then I, I picked up Susan Hack's book, uh, Philosophy of Logics, and I saw the S and it really freaked me out because I'm like, wait, no, no, you can't do logics. What does that mean? So I wonder if you could help us out with um, understanding like classical and non-classical. Can you give us an, an overview or subclassical? I don't even know. There's there's so many different. Yeah, no, uh, there, are, there are a million, but I think the place to start is that. Yeah, like, you know, when, when I tried to set it up, I tried to make it look like logic is easy. There's a certain kind of pattern of inference, like, you know, mm -hmm. from A and B infer A, from A infer A or B, things like that, mm -hmm. or from for all X, FX infer F of any particular thing. Mm -hmm. And those look pretty easy, and those are pretty common across a wide range of logics. But then what happens is we encounter some difficulties. So here's the one that actually really is the focus of things surrounding truth, which is what would you do if you encountered something that was neither true nor false? Mm -hmm. And in particular, what would you do if you encountered a sentence, the kind of thing you want to apply your logic to that was neither true nor false? Um, and you might think that there are such. Um, you don't even have to get into the liar kind of problems. You might think that if I try to refer to something that's not here, if I point in the back of me and say, that elephant is about to make noise, mm -hmm. I think, eh, I mean, people have a lot of different judgments about this, but neither true nor false looks like one you might want to say. Yeah. Something went wrong. But as soon as we think in those terms, we have to think about something which turns out to be a slightly different logic than the standard one, or at least the mm -hmm. classical one. Um, because if you have neither true nor false, you have to ask what truth preservation is. Yeah. Is it just preservation of being true? Is it, and that means that you basically count neither true nor false, and false is kind of behaving the same. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe you want something a little more picky, right? That it preserves truth and it preserves falsehood and it never messes up the middle. Mm -hmm. And you also have to decide. Like how the connectives, the words like and and or and not, that um, sort of make the structure of logic go, you have to decide how those behave. And so if I first say that elephant is going to make a noise, and you say, uh, <laughs> what if I say not that? Not the case that that elephant's going to make a noise. Uh, is that true? Mm -hmm. Non-classical logics very often resist saying that's true. That's no better than the unnegated claim. Dr. Glasberg, if, if, if you did say no, um, would, that, would that be buying into a false presupposition and like quantifying over this elephant that doesn't exist? Or um, yeah, so, some people wanted to say it's false, you know? Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of ways out of this. So one is to say there was a presupposition and whenever you have false presuppositions, you don't apply anything. So there's like a kind of general crash. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're trying to systematize this and you want to say, for any sentence I give you, what happens to when I put a negation in front of it? Yeah. And you kind of, 
don't get that easy way out quite so quickly. Right. But if you want to systematize it, then you got to answer the question. If, if, if my sentence is neither true nor false, what's the truth value of the negation? Mm-hmm. And if you take the neither true nor false seriously in a non-classical way, you probably want to say, no, the, the negation's not true either. Mm-hmm. So the non-classical table for negation typically says you map false to true, true to false, and neither stays the same. Mm-hmm. But that's not something we can even talk about in a classical setting. Oh, I didn't say in the background, the classical setting assumes two truth values. Okay. Just true, just false, and nothing else. Yeah. Um, and kind of that's what everybody started out thinking way back when was just natural. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you talk yourself into the idea that maybe we want to at least consider more truth values, you open up a whole space of ways to handle it. Hmm. Um, and so you can, of course, sort of just insist on a classical <laughs> approach and say, nah, I don't, nah, you know, that's just false, right? Right. Neither true nor false is really false. That's a kind of classical response. Um, once we don't do that, we have a whole range of options. Hmm. The most salient ones for the stuff we're going to talk about with the liar are what JC and I usually call paracomplete and paraconsistent options. Mm-hmm. Paracomplete basically says there's things that are neither true nor false. That means that a classic law in logic called the law of the excluded middle fails. Mm-hmm. Um, law of the excluded middle takes the form A for any arbitrary A or not A. Yeah. Well, doc, Dr. Glensberg, is that is uh, excluded middle the same as bivalence or is there a difference there? Uh, um, at the level we are talking, it's probably – so they're not the same. Okay. You can have logics where excluded middle is true but bivalence fails. Okay. But at the level we were just talking, that point is extremely delicate and refined. (laughs) So, yeah, they're not the same, but I don't think we need to worry about that right now. Okay. Um, um, The logics that make that particular distinction clear are kind of cool, but they're tricky. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, I think that all of this is cool and tricky, but uh, yeah, I can can see where you're going with that. Yeah. Oh, and so the other, the other kind of big option that, you know, when JC and my joint work, we often talk about is what's called a paraconsistent logic. Mm-hmm. Now, this one, many people, if they're not sort of deep in this, hear it and make, think it sounds totally crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the idea that there are some things that are both true and false. Yeah. And when we get to the liar, you'll actually see some pressure to actually like that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out that paracomplete and paraconsistent logics are not as different as they sound. Hmm. Um, and that's really surprising when you think about it. But here's the idea that makes them not that different. Um, for a paracomplete logic, you have three truth values. Mm-hmm. And preservation of truth is preservation of the value true. So we don't have to worry about anything other than true when we look at um, logical consequence. Okay. Paraconsistent logic just simply says preserve either true or neither. Hmm. That's the only change you need to make. That's very amazing because it seems intuitively like these logics had 
like almost nothing to do with each other that, you know, so many people when they start this intuitively think, oh, neither true nor false, neither true or false. I can sort mm -hmm. of make sense of that because I gave you an example of something that seemed like that. Both true and false. Now that seems crazy, mm -hmm. but it turns out when you do this sort of in an abstract formal setting, the difference is relatively minor. Now it's not that there's no difference. And in fact, these logics play out a little bit differently, Yeah. but the techniques you need to build them formally are surprisingly similar. So these logics are cousins. Okay. So these are what JC likes to call of subclassical logics because yeah. they prove just a little less than classical logic. Yeah. But everything they prove is classically provable. Okay. Okay. Um, so when a lot of people think of classical logic, they think the three fundamental laws of logic, uh, non-contradiction, excluded middle, and identity. And then when I when I pick up, uh, you know, formal theories of truth, when I pick up uh, more technical work, it seems like not very many people are still using that that language. It seems like we're, we're focusing way more on connectives and stuff like that. Does... When, when I talk about non-contradiction or excluded middle or identity, is that like, um, is that showing that I, I really am not on the inside, that I don't know uh, no, what, what's going on? No, I mean, it's just one unfortunate thing about, well, logic, but lots of other fields is there's a little too much terminology. Okay. Um, no, it's basically the same thing. So the law of non-contradiction is the thing that what I call paraconsistent logics reject. Right. Um, the law of excluded middle is the one that paracomplete logics reject. Um, for most of our work, we don't really worry too much about the law of identity. Um, oh, okay. Um, you, you mean like be between two terms, like A equals A kinds of things? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, partly because we try and leave the terms and quantifiers as simple as we can. Okay. Uh, and it so happens in the logics we work with that doesn't get messed up. Um, nice. By nice. the way, once you start playing this game, mm -hmm. Like the whole world opens up. Yeah. Um, once you start realizing sort of that there's this abstract way of thinking of a logic, lots of things can be called logic. Now, when I put on my, like, I don't know, when I put on my philosopher's hat, some of them don't look to me like what I sort of initially thought logic was. Yeah. But here's one way you might want to motivate a paraconsistent logic, even outside of these sort of paradox cases. Imagine you're describing the querying of a database mm -hmm. and that database contains contradictory information. You would really not want your query machine to crash just because it had contradictory information. Yeah. That's a different way of thinking about a paraconsistent logic. Here's another one. Suppose I want my logic to describe real world resource bounded computation, mm -hmm. where if I'm working on, just what follows from one in the sense of what I can compute follows from what, then memory limitations in my computer are important. Mm. That fundamentally changes the abstract logic. Yeah. That becomes what we call a substructural logic, um, where if you can prove something from A, repeat it twice, there's no guarantee you can prove it from A, not repeat it twice, which mm. intuitively, if you think about the nature of proof, is just showing what follows from what should be totally absurd, right? Yeah. Why, why would it bother if I repeat? Why would it matter if I repeated it? Yeah. But if repeating it opened up more memory, then that would actually matter. So yeah. when we talk about logics, there are many different ways to think about it. One is just a kind of 
let's get this tool more general and more able to cover more stuff. Yeah. But the other thought is, well, we also still want this to stick with that original thing I tried to describe, but cheated on, which is that like what really follows from what? Right. What's the absolute preservation of truth? Yeah. And so there you can ask a question, which is, are any of these formalisms up to capturing that? Mm-hmm. And there are two responses. Which, well, they're, uh, they're, one, these are going to be trivially exhaustive, but um, either there's an answer or there's not. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, so now we're back to logical trivialities, but pluralists say, oh, there's really no answer, right? You can, there are many logics, and they're all, most of them are just as good. Yeah. Some people um, really think that there's got to be an answer. Which one is logic? We sometimes want to put with a capital L. Yeah. There's a big debate about if there is one that's really right, which one? Mm-hmm. Classical logic was classical. It started, it was sort of there around the beginning, whatever the beginning was. Yeah. yeah. And so some of these other ones feel like newcomers, but people are seriously worried if you believe there's a, a one that's just the right logic, which one? Um, are, are, are they are they logic monists? Yeah, I mean, I guess that would be the right label. Nobody's ever bothered to... <laughs> use that as far as I know. But yeah, and I think I'm probably a logic monist. All right. We just coined a term. This is great. Yeah. This is, love it. I guess it has to be the opposite of pluralist. Uh, I was wondering if singularist, but that doesn't sound as good as monist. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Monist has the ring to it. So you you would say you're probably in there. Um, would, do you, you got a, a flag to plant? Do you, are you classical um, or qualified I, I, classical? Pretty cautious here, but I my instincts are classical. Okay. Um, now, once you're classical, there are still a few questions, like um, a little bit more technical terminology, but first order or second order. Mm-hmm. So what kinds of things do you quantify over? First order logics quantify over individuals, things, ordinary things. Yeah. Second order logics allow you to quantify over properties, too. Mm-hmm. And going classical, so making a decision on in the space I just described, where it's how many truth values and what preservation of truth value. Still other questions. And I'm pretty cautious. I think I go the whole way. And All I right. think I want to go for first order classical logic. Wow. Which was a position that many people have held. So Quine held it. Mm-hmm. I don't think I hold it for Quine's reasons. Yeah. Um, I, I was once con- accused of being a logical arch conservative. Uh, somebody who's very good at turning phrases accused me of being a logical metternich. Um, <laughs> uh, awesome. Um, but I do this very cautiously because honestly, I think the arguments that actually show this are quite weak. Okay. Um, and so I don't take the position that some people do that you look at somebody who's proposing, you know, so Grand Priest really genuinely believes that paraconsistent logic is the correct logic. Yeah. Um, and, you know, some people look at this and just, you know, start accusing people of craziness. Right. And I really don't. I think that this is a genuine question. And I think that resolving it remains very elusive. Yeah. And I do kind of think that I can aside for the super traditional option, but not because it's like the only thing that one who is reasonable and rational could consider. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, that's great. I love, yeah, I love the the conservative there. And then I, I do love the, hey, look, 
you can be really smart and not believe this. And I think Grand Priest is probably uh, the boogeyman for anyone who thinks you, you're an idiot if you just if you don't believe in classical logic. Well, that guy's really really smart. And if you were on the podcast, he'd eat my lunch, and it would be embarrassing. <laughs> um, this is actually part of the reason I mentioned a little while ago that there's a formal sense in which paracomplete and paraconsistent logics aren't all that different after all. Yeah. Because, yeah, you look at it and there's this tend- tendency to say, oh, if you think they're true contradictions, you've, like, <laughs> gone into crazy land. Yeah. No, um, I still don't think there are, but, no, you haven't gone into crazy land. You've made a modest modification of a consequence relation. Yeah. And you probably did it for good reason. Yeah. I thought uh, when you were talking about the query machine, I, I thought about uh, most sci-fi movies and how, well, older sci-fi movies, how they built in a, uh, well, it's not built in, but if you ask the machine a contradiction, then it explodes. Oh, yeah. And how- oh, yeah. There was an old Star Trek that actually had that happen, I think. There was like yeah. a, a like 60s special effects robot that exploded or something. Was that <laughs> Star Trek? I, it, it sounds right. I don't yeah. know. Um, well, and, and that was a theme in, in, in a lot of sci-fi. And so maybe, you know, your reason here is not, I think that uh, this lamp can both be here and not be here, but I, I'm building a robot and I don't want uh, Swiss Family Robinson to blow it up or something like that. And so, I'm, <laughs> so maybe I'm not insane, but because of the system, I, I don't want that to happen. I want it to crash. Yeah. And that's a pretty reasonable request. Yeah. <laughs> now, right. you can ask whether that's, you know, with a lot of these logics you can ask whether that's the sort of capital l logic or just a useful tool that i think is an open question yeah so i actually look at these logics i was trying to describe that are resource sensitive mm-hmm. i find them very difficult to work with and my intuitions that that's about like consequence are very thin so there i look yeah. and say those are cool but that's not that capital l logic yeah you could say the same about the paraconsistent logic if it was motivated by database concerns Mm -hmm. Um, or you could take the other line which says no it's not just motivated by those it's really the genuinely correct thing that captures truth preservation yeah well and i think another important point i'm sure a lot of listeners uh are thinking this but uh there's been this move this kind of brings us over to to truth and and brings truth into the the uh, topic that uh we've moved from in talking about truth and logic, we've moved from metaphysics to semantics. And some people will say, I mean, it's, it's easy to just talk about semantics, uh, but but there's a book and it's either here or it's not here. Or Tibbles is on the mat or Tibbles is not on the mat. But not both. And so if you get into semantics, you can play all these crazy games. But uh, when you're actually doing metaphysics, it's, it's not a problem. You've written uh, in this paper, I think it's representation and the modern correspondence theory of truth that um, it's actually a benefit to move from metaphysics to uh, the study of semantics. Uh, am I getting that right? And, and why should we not yeah. be freaked out about that? Yeah. Yeah. Good. I mean, so maybe another way to put it is that maybe the right place to get the metaphysics is in the semantics. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, so there was a traditional approach to truth and this goes back actually quite a long way. Arguably this goes back to classical times, but certainly around like the, the late 18th beginning of the, sorry, the late 19th beginning of the 20th centuries, right? Okay. So work of Russell and Moore and um, uh, Bradley and people like this, there was a real fight over what the nature of truth was. Yeah. And it related to these sort of metaphysical questions of idealism versus what I guess we'll call realism. Mm-hmm. 
right? And so there was a trend floating around to think in idealist terms. It's very hard not to caricature idealism, but I'll <laughs> caricature it for a moment just to, like, okay. there isn't really an outside world. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a horrible caricature. But notice, <laughs> if there's no real outside world, then the idea that truth is a relation between what you think or say and the outside world no longer happens. Yeah. And so many idealists held coherence theories of truth. Mm -hmm. The idea is truth is a sort of maximal coherence of your thinking. Yeah. Um, now, again, that's a hideous caricature of real uh, coherence theorists. Um, yeah. But nonetheless, there's that contrast. And this feels like big metaphysics, right? That, you know, the yeah. contrast for Russell and Moore said that this lost the robust sense of reality. Yeah. That there's a real outside world. And as Russell would have put it, there are facts. Yeah. Well, and Dr. Glensburg, real quick, we're, we're, I think the motivation, and I think I got this from Davidson, but the motivation, I think, for the idealist was to say, we don't want a gap between thought and reality. Otherwise, skepticism can, yes. can creep in. And I think guys like Russell are like, well, you just embrace skepticism because now there is no external world. Yeah, there are different ways of, yeah. So it's definitely right that the coherence theory was both a kind of cousin of idealism, but it also had these epistemological payoffs that even if you're not quite embracing skepticism, um, truth looks extremely demanding if yeah. you take the correspondence theory to its extreme. Because mm -hmm. it requires you to do all these things that seem amazing. Like somehow there's this world of facts out there and you, just a mere human being, somehow manage to directly hook up to them, not yeah. just that, in a way that's exactly like them. Mm -hmm. Man, that's a high bar, and you might worry if we can ever get that. Yeah. Um, coherence theories just sort of make the epistemology very accessible, right? Mm -hmm. That just just be coherent. Again, that's not an actual gloss on a real theory, but that's right. that's one difference. And so, one thing that's happened in the last oh, I don't know, sort of starting somewhere probably in the. 50s, so is that we've sort of not totally, but somewhat moved away from this. Mm -hmm. And so the contrast has ceased in most discussions to be kind of correspondence versus coherence, yeah. but correspondence versus deflationism. Hmm. Um, and so deflationism is, again, in caricature form, the idea that there isn't really a property of truth at all. Mm -hmm. That truth is so simple and so obvious that it isn't anything. Um, part of the reason for this is that I think that the sort of strong forms of idealism that were floating around, say, Britain in the 19th century have really fallen out of favor. Yeah, big time. And coherence theories of truth are really, really hard to make work. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a certain way in which once you give up the metaphysical backing of sort of worrying about idealism, something about the correspondence theory now seems to be almost a truism. Okay. Right. So almost a truism that if what I think or what I think or say is true or say is true, well, that happens just when things are the way I say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's really hard to hear. Is not a truism. Mm -hmm. And so you draw the insistence that, say, Russell had that that meant that you stood in a relation of structural correspondence to a fact, which was a very particular kind of entity. Yeah. Oh, by the way, that view is still floating around, but it's no longer sort of the only game in town. 
So a lot of us who are sort of sticking to what we thought of as the correspondence theory are trying to cash out this truism that what I say or think is true just in case things are the way you say they are. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a sense in which that is easy and a truism. The debate these days between deflationists and what I think of as sort of robust correspondence, I call them correspondence theories, but I call it the, the modern correspondence theory to make it a little different from the classical version. Right, right. Um, um, the deflationists say, yeah, that truism is such a truism that it doesn't really do anything. Mm-hmm. There's no more to what you said than that. Um, so classical version, not the one that is most contemporary, but you look at the truism that what I say or think is true just in case um, things are the way they say. How would I report things are the way they say? I say, so we go back to everybody's favorite sentence, snow is white. Right. right. Uh, <laughs> ever since Starsky, we're stuck with snow is white. Yep. Yep. And so, okay, to sit snow is white is true are to be for things to be as I say. Mm-hmm. What did I say? Snow is white. That means it looks like snow is white is true if and only if snow is white. That looks as boring as could be. The deflationists say, that's right, it is boring. It does exactly one thing. It allows you to peel the truth predicate off something. (laughs) Actually, it does a little more than that because the truth predicate is useful. Um, The truth predicate allows you to say a few things that you can't really say otherwise. Um, Everybody's favorite example of this is the I forget the official name for this. It's the doctrine of papal infallibility, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I know that there's more complicated details of this than us logicians ever remember. But the, 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 the sloppy form is everything the Pope says is true. Mm-hmm. And whether that's really the doctrine or not, it's not the worry. It's that notice that's something that's really hard for us to say without the word true. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's sort of conceptually unimaginable. It's just that you'd have to be able to articulate everything the Pope says, and then you just say it, right? You know, so, um, so the deflationist says, it's not that truth is totally trivial. It's a convenient device. Mm -hmm. And that's it. It's a device for expressing things that were hard to express, or maybe if the class of sentences infinite, maybe impossible to express, but it's just a way to say a bit more. So the contrast here now is that us correspondence theorists think, no, 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 this idea that you're talking about the world, that what you say is true in virtue of the way the world is, contrast what you, truth is just an expressive device. It does nothing else. <laughs> and actually, so when you originally asked the question, like, isn't it weird to have gotten away from metaphysics? Mm-hmm. Certain way in which, yeah, I think we have gotten away from metaphysics, but not totally, right? Because now we're fighting over a slightly different metaphysical question, which is, is there a substantial property? Yeah. yeah. And if so, what's its nature? Yeah. yeah. And so we still want to cash out the idea of your correspondence theorists that the nature is something about connecting to the world. And then the claim we make is, yeah, that should be something connected to semantics because we're talking about claims and what makes them true. And if that's what you're looking for, well, 
that is a kind of semantic relation. Right. Um, that's a semantic relation that stands together with reference. Mm -hmm. So when I say, you know, that book, if I were to manage to point to a single book, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is written by, oh, I can't tell. Um, uh, there's, I know there's some Trollope up there. That book is written by <laughs> Anthony Trollope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, there's a relation of reference. I picked out a real thing in the world. Mm -hmm. Contra-idealists and contra-deflationists. And I said something about it, that it was written by Trollope. And that's true for a particular semantic reason, because the predicate does genuinely apply to the thing I picked out. Yeah. And so that all looks like a reason to think truth is a semantic notion. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. The, the, I used I to used think inflationism was kind of, was crazy, kind of crazy, but... but I think you actually just motivated it. Uh, you helped me see that it's not crazy. I think they, they're probably saying, and I, I think you probably said this, but um, the truth predicate needs to be more important. And you correspondence folks, you're just diluting it by putting it on everything. But I'm saying, no, it's actually more valuable than that. And we're going to use it for specific purposes. And it doesn't do all the inflation that you guys want it to do, but it, it's useful. So stop, uh, stop. Yeah, diluting it by overusing it. Does, does that seem like yeah. your motivation? Um, the usefulness is the motivation, but I don't okay. think they'd agree with the diluting. Okay. I think they'd say we over, what's the opposite of diluting? We, we make it too heavy. Yes, so yes, sorry. Is, right. Yeah. Their point is you don't need anything other than this. We call it the disquotation property. Okay. It's the property that you can take something that you say true of a sentence Mm -hmm. If and only if that sentence, that means you can sort of pull the quotes and the truth predicate off. Right. Yeah. They say, that's all you need. There's nothing else. Don't worry about what truth is. Don't, it's, it's just that. It's a, it's a tool. Mm -hmm. It's a tool for disquoting. Yeah. Um, whereas we correspondence theorists say, no, 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 we really care about this idea that it's, it's when I say word to world connection. It's one that, you know, makes us talk about real stuff out there. And then we want to say the truth, like reference, are these fundamental semantic properties. Yeah. Um, so when you ask whether this was somehow like getting away from the metaphysics, I think in a way my answer is, well, we've gotten away from a certain strand of metaphysics, which was this very heady realism versus anti-realism, idealism stuff. Mm -hmm. And we've kind of shifted more to a, a little more focused, well, does this property have much weight? And if it, you know, in the sense of being, you know, substantial, heavy property. And if so, can we find somewhere to give some insights into what the weight is? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, this begins to look a little more like logic or semantics, but I don't think we've totally given up on the kind of basic metaphysical question, which was what is this property? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I think maybe, um, there, it seems like there might be a lower bar for the modern um, correspondence theory in that uh, you can. It's a it's a larger camp, so you don't have to have all. You don't all have to have the same or any maybe uh, truth maker theory or um, theory of of facts as uh, obtaining states of affairs. You can say we, we, what we need is sentences. We don't need like uh, Phrygian or Phrygian uh, propositions. We just need sentences. And does that sound right? That that. It's not in, in not focusing on the heavy, even like Platonist uh, metaphysics that you can have a broader camp of, of folks 
Yeah, I mean, there's still internal fights within the sort of broadly correspondency set of views. So I defend a pretty particular one, which actually is intentionally fairly metaphysically lightweight. Mm-hmm. I don't require facts, and I'm pretty, and I don't even particularly require propositions because mm-hmm. I like to run. I like to think of it as running off sentences that have syntactic and semantic structure. Mm-hmm. But you got to be a little careful there because, of course, context dependence is going to get in. So just like explaining how that's going to run in detail is a big thing. Mm-hmm. But there are also plenty of people out there who think that facts are a really important bit of the metaphysics. Yeah, I haven't argued against that. I've just sort of suggested I don't need to use it. Um, there are lots of people and for lots of reasons who think propositions are very real. And I actually kind of do. Wow, all right. I actually kind of think that when you say something, you typically express a proposition. Mm-hmm. Um, I just am inclined to roll all the truth and semantic stuff onto the sentence level and then get the proposition out at the end. Mm-hmm. But so it's not a, so that leaves lots of other options open, right? You can, you can imagine people who come in like really certain, no, we want to run this off propositions mm-hmm. and like say, okay, I, I'm not sure that's a good idea, but okay. Um, or somebody else comes in, you know, Armstrong could come in and say, no, there really are facts. Yeah. It's like, yeah, okay. Uh, again, I'm, I'm, some mornings I wake up and I think I understand facts and some mornings I wake up and I think I don't, but. Um, I'm the same. Yeah. I, f- facts are wild. I love them. I love thinking about them, but yes, they're wild. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, this is. I like what you're doing and I like how, how um, you don't, you're not a crazy dogmatic and saying everyone else is crazy, but me. And I like that, that your uh, view can include, like if you were a, a heavyweight uh, metaphysician, you could still appropriate your, your work because you still get the propositions at the end. Um, but you're saying, don't, don't start there. I really like that. Um, but does, does logic, this is the whole, the whole question of realism and stuff too, right? Um, does logic tell us, the truth about the world like is that is that the job of a big l logic is that do we get at truth mm. i think we better say no though then okay. we'll see if there's a, a a kernel of yes in there certainly logic of course can't tell you the truth about the world in the sense of telling you what the world is like okay logic definitely can't do that logic tells you what logically follows from what and that, that just can't be in the job, do the job of telling you like what the facts are here. I mean, fact in that sort of loose sense of just like what stuff is happening and what right. stuff isn't. Um, logic can't do that. What about like modal, um, modal logic, modal truths? Um, so it might be that we write up, yeah, I mean, so if we look at a modal logic and it tells us something about the necessity of identity, mm-hmm. I guess that's a metaphysical, but also a, a general conclusion. But notice that's about as far as modal logic is going to get you if it's just a pure logic, right? It's not going to tell you, for instance, that one plus one equals two is necessary. Okay. Um, we really think it is, mm-hmm. but the logic's not going to tell you that. The logic is just going to see a sentence. Yeah. And it doesn't know whether that's necessary or contingent. The, the place I did want to be a little cautious, most many ways, but not all, of doing logic 
involve invoking a notion of truth. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to do this. If you do it all syntactically, if you write, if you just do a proof yeah. theory where you say how to make, how to infer one sentence from another, mm -hmm. you don't ever have to mention the notion of truth. But if you think of logic in terms of truth preservation, the way I described it, then your basic notion is one that's somehow truth involving. Mm -hmm. um, people often point out very quickly that this can be a somewhat technical notion, right? So think about logic in that other sense I was talking about where you can describe computations or databases or things like that. Mm -hmm. Truth is kind of just the, the end point of a computation or something. But we do think when we now talk about logic with a capital L that truth was supposed to be truth. <laughs> so logic is, I think of it as truth involving, but it's not going to tell you what's true. Mm -hmm. And because we have this variety of logics around, it's going to be hard to get an answer for what the general nature of truth is out of just looking at logics unless you make a decision. Mm. And even then, what you'll get are some pretty abstract things. If you're classical, there are two truth values, true and false. If you're non-classical, there are probably three or more, right? Once you do three, you might want four. <laughs> um, yeah, sure, you might, because right, once, you, once, you, once you're in for more, like there could be neither true nor false and both true and false. Right. Turns out you don't always need both, but you can get in for more, right? So commitments about logic might tell you some stuff about this. Mm -hmm. um, it's very hard to think that pure logic would just tell you whether deflationism or correspondence theory is right. Yeah, you have to plug in your own. Uh, I always think in terms of, of uh, Searle's Chinese room, it was really influential really early on and i know we're not you know he might be the he who is uh, not to be named or anything like that but syntax and semantics that he uses in there and i think of what we're getting at now is like uh logic in the abstract the the syntactical but you still need to plug in the the meanings you you still need to uh, it won't tell you anything unless you put in the the meanings and then it can run does that seem right yeah, I mean, the nice thing about logic is that it can do things either way, right? So you can have perfectly good syntactic systems. Yeah. Um, but you also want to ask whether those syntactic systems are, as you usually say, sound. That is whether they preserve truth. Yeah. And when you do that, you have to decide what counts as preserving truth. And so then we're back to these sort of questions about which logic, um, or at least which sort of setup for the logic. Um and so we very quickly get soundness theorems for syntactic representations of paraconsistent and paracomplete logics. It's not a big surprise because they were kind of built just to be sound for those right. consequence relations. So, but we do get the matchup pretty nicely with logic that the semantic side typically overlaps exactly with the syntactic side. Mm -hmm. That is, you want a logic that's sound and complete. Um, it's not until you get to second order logics that you lose that. Okay. <laughs> Most of the logics we're looking at in the neighborhood here get that property. Okay. Um, and I think we've, we've already, I think we've covered this, but you and uh, JC Bill, you've uh, written a paper where you, we talk about the, the natural path and the logic path. And I think, I think our conversation has been tracking that, but um, would, would you agree or, or is there more to say about that? There's a little more to say about that, but it, it comes down to the liar, which we haven't really talked about. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Um. So in a way, I think you mentioned in the intro, there's some ways in which the liar looks like a kind of parlor trick. Mm -hmm. 
So you, you look at something that's a sentence that says, the sentence I'm saying right now is not true. Now, you can quickly reason that if that's true, then what it says is true, but what it says is it's not true, so it's not true. Mm -hmm. If it's not true, then what it says is true. So it's true. So it's mm -hmm. true if and only if it's not true. Um, this turns out to be a very big deal, not just a parlor trick. Yeah. Because as soon as you have that, remember that thing I described as this disquotation principle that mm -hmm. A is true if and only if A? Mm -hmm. That has to be logically untenable in the presence of the liar paradox and classical logic. Um, those three things are mutually inconsistent. Mm. That's a big deal. Yeah. Because what we think is that um, we start out thinking truth is, a, you know, the logic of truth, even if you're a correspondence theorist and you think like the internal workings are complicated, the logic looks simple to the point of triviality. It's just that disquotation property. A is true if and only if A. Once we have the liar around, that's now a big deal. Yeah. Um, a very big deal. So it's not just a parlor trick. Mm -hmm. And the other thing to point out is it's, even though some people, including Tarski, try to just make the liar go away, yeah. it's real hard. Very, very simple formal systems allow it, and natural language seems to allow it. And so making it go away is really hard. Yeah. Well, so one one um, ploy, maybe that's too harsh. One way of trying to get away from it is on the, the popular level, people will say, well, look, there's no content. It's a it's a faux sentence. It's not real. Can you help? Like, why, why is that uh, wrong? Yeah. Um, so there's a certain way in which ultimately paracomplete um, theories do kind of like something like that, okay. but it's not that easy. So mm -hmm. the first thing is saying it's a faux sentence. I mean, in a way, Tarski actually didn't, he, he stipulated that it was a faux sentence, right? Okay. That it was tactically not well formed, mm -hmm. but that's really hard to do because you, you discover natural occurrence of these in, in human languages. Yeah. You write up a formal system that has even the most minimal syntactic properties and you can produce these. It mm -hmm. really looks like they're genuinely well-formed sentences. Okay. Now, if you're in a classical logic mm -hmm. setting, you're done, right? The, the background structure is that these are true or false. Next move, well, scrap classical logic. <laughs> this now sounds really natural because what you want to say is the liar sentence is neither true nor false. Right. Um, now, I jump to a particular version of the liar. I put it the liar sent that this sentence is not true. Mm -hmm. Suppose you were a little more casual and said this sentence is false. Yeah. If you declare that neither true nor false, you're more or less okay. That's the weakened, do they call it the weakened liar? Uh, terminology is sort of sloppy here, but that's okay. the one that everybody knows is too, too easy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> By putting it that it's not true, notice if you're neither true nor false, you're not true. Mm -hmm. And that means that what you said is true. Yep. And so it's not that easy. Mm-hmm. 
So the non-classical approach says it's not just finding like a, a thing that happens not to be true or false. Mm-hmm. It's genuinely changing the logic. Yeah. Genuinely giving up on the law of the excluded middle, genuinely adapting, adopting a non-classical, in this case, we're considering a paracomplete logic. Yeah. And then you can't make the inferences that you needed to to make the liar go if you're really careful about all the steps. But you also lose something. Mm-hmm. Um, the T schema, the general principle T of A, if and only if A, Mm-hmm. Is that That's is that is that a Tarski? Is that a T sentence? Is that from Tarski? Uh, so the scheme is supposed to be all of the instances, right? So it's okay. true snow is white if and only if snow is white. True grass is green if and only okay. grass. Okay, that's just the white. truth predicate. The yeah, the, okay. the, yeah. Gotcha. So the thing is that no longer holds. In yeah, there are complete logics for the obvious reason that the liar instance is not true. Mm-hmm. Um, so you give that up you have to try and find some replacement for it. Mm-hmm. And that's a substantial project, right? So JC is involved in that. Graham with a slightly different logic is involved in that. Lots of people are involved in that. Yeah. The other option on the sort of more classical correspondency side is to say, you know, that T schema wasn't ever true in general. It was only true in some specific cases. Mm. And if you just worked your way through the semantics a little more carefully, you'd see that. Okay. And so we no longer think that the T schema is fully valid. That is, it's no longer, not every instance is true. Do you have um, to give some kind of criteria for saying, here's why it's true in these cases? Or, or do you just say, or is that not part of the project? No, you have to. Well, I mean, if you didn't, it'd be too cheap. <laughs> okay. the, the thing that falls out is that you want to say something, I mean, you got to be moment when it'd be good to have a a whiteboard because um, what you want to do is say not the truth predicate doesn't rule every sentence or its negation to be true. Mm -hmm. That's a little change from what you intuitively thought the truth predicate did. Right. But that's something you can still do in classical logic because that's just a predicate. Uh And so the, the diagnostic is very close to the intuition about neither true nor false, but we do it in fully classical terms. Okay. If you have a sentence which is such that either the sentence is true or its negation is true, mm-hmm. then T that sentence if and only if that sentence. Okay. So the intuition remains somewhat the same. It's just that one way to do it is to say the T schema or its replacement moving back and forth between A and TA, mm-hmm. that's the unquestionable basic thing about truth. If you're a deflationist, that's the whole point. That's the thing that makes truth the useful thing. Yeah. And you can't challenge that. Mm -hmm. And so you have to change the logic. Yeah. For the classical correspondence oriented people, we say, no, 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 there's a lot in the semantics going on. Not every sentence had this nice property of being either it or its negation true. Yeah. And so we only get the T schema when instances of the T schema for the ones that that nice property holds of. Yeah. If you're thinking semantically, that's not so bad. It's mm-hmm. got, you know, there's, there's always more problems to come, but it's not so bad. Yeah. And so what JC and I argued was that what you think truth is like really constrains your decisions here. If you're a deflationist, the intersubstitutability of truth of a being true and a 
is simply not up for grabs because that's the whole thing that truth is, right? Truth that's isn't right. a property, it's a device. The device is made to work by having that intersubstitutability feature. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. You cannot challenge that. That means in the face of the liar, you have to change the logic. Mm-hmm. Um, in, and unless, well, yeah, you really have to because in the face of classical logic, any theory of truth that would become trivial. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other side is if you take this more correspondency semantic approach, it's very much up for grabs hmm. whether the T schema holds in full generality. And what I argue is, in fact, it's a better way out to um, um, keep classical logic and give up on the T schema. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the trade-off here is that which view on the, well, what we call the nature question, or maybe the sort of metaphysics, if you like, sure, sure. tells you which your options are. <laughs> this is so this good. Is so good. Um, um, in the circles, in the circles I, run I run in, we always, we always toss run. Neo on everything. Oh, uh, yeah. is, 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 is this like an, it, it seems to me it's like, it's kind of like a Neo classical logics. It's like, look, we're not saying what exactly what Aristotle said, or if Aristotle even said any of this, but the, the early, you know, uh, late, the late 1800s, early 1900s folks, we're not saying exactly what they're saying. Um, we're just, we're, we're qualifying this, this T schema and we'd rather do that than let go of the classical logics where the the uh, yeah the priority for like JC and and some of the subclassical guys is to say we like the T scheme mm, they don't like the T schema they, well actually you can't so what you do is in a in a subclassical setting two things that are equivalent in the classical setting cease to be so look at the T schema in the sense of T A if and only if A mm-hmm. Compare that with a pair of rules, which JC and I call capture and release. Yeah. One is from A and for TA, and the other is from TA and for A. Yeah. In the classical setting, these are equivalent. In many non-classical settings, they're not. So in, in the sub, uh, sorry, in the, the paracomplete setting, the biconditional is not, does not hold in general. Yeah. It fails for any liar instance, but the inference patterns still stay. Okay. So you open up some space, and they like that. Yeah. I guess the other thing I wanted to comment, there's a certain way in which the logic in my preferred approach remains fully classical. Yeah. If you had an, a prior intuition that the T schema held in full generality, you have to drop that. Okay. But that's no longer a logical claim, right? Because, you know, we've got this fundamental semantic property, but or, or maybe the way to put it is the T schema wasn't absolutely part of logic yeah property of truth that we cared about Mm -hmm. but dropping that in full generality doesn't change the underlying logic that's good that's really good i like that okay um oh the other quick thing yeah so what we call classical logic really emerged around the night well it got identified like in the early 20th century okay we always think the 1930s okay Maybe a little earlier, sort of Frege seemed to have produced it out of thin air. And there were predecessors to Frege who certainly had pretty strong ideas close to it. Sure. It probably, you know, you have to ask an Aristotle scholar whether what Aristotle had is quite this. He certainly had some pieces of it. Sure. But the 
the idea that there's classical logic kind of emerged then. And then, of course, the, the big issue wasn't between subclassical and classical logics. It was between classical logic and intuitionism. Okay. Um, but so that kind of classical logic as a thing emerged because there was this opponent, intuitionism. Yeah. Before that, people would have just said logic. Right. Uh, nobody, I think. Um, well, yeah. I'm sure if we delve into the history, Aristotle was worried about future contingents. So maybe somebody had some gleams of this, but the, the mainstream was doing philosophy, was doing like foundations of mathematics and the logic was fully classical and that was it. Right. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that, that we discover these things and we move forward because of the dial- dialectic, because someone is disagreeing and say, wait a second. Otherwise, you're just swimming in the fishbowl and you have no idea that what water is. That's <laughs> yeah, I guess that's yeah. true. Yeah. It's a sort of funny creature to ask about water in some ways. But <laughs> right. yeah, I mean, you know, we still hold up. We don't, at least I don't think of this as just a matter of dialectic, right? I still, you know, I think classical logic is correct. Right. Yeah. And it, you know, remains correct regardless of what other options are floating around. But it's certainly a whole lot easier to raise some questions if you have some options on the table. Yeah. Well, um, Dr. Glansberg, as we come to a close here, so we've we've heard on the podcast from from uh, Dr. J.C. Beale and, and what he thinks about the liar paradox, and I think he does go for all four, and he says, you know, he uses gluddy and gappy. Yep. I I hate saying gluddy. It's that word just is weird. <laughs> but uh, and and you've used more technical languages for that. Uh, do you? And this is a tough like thing, and uh, I think it made someone uh, lose their mind. I think uh, the liar paradox maybe made someone die or something in, in history of philosophy. Um, um, there are all these claims from Diogenes Laertius. Right. Happening. Um, and who but, knows what to not, yeah, Diogenes like crazy. What, what do you, what do you think? Like, do you have a, a thought through like answer to this is how we deal with, is it just the letting go of the, the T sentence? Is that the solution or what do you make of that? There's more. Okay. Um, I do have an, I do have a view on this, um, mm-hmm. but there's a little more than that. That's one of the steps. Mm-hmm. Um, but you still have to deal with what some people call the strength and liar. Right. So here's what I think is actually the underlying phenomenon. And here we won't worry too much about the T schema, but so okay. um, suppose I do any, if I, if I give the liar a truth value, we know we're going to get back into, oh, sorry. Um, suppose I refuse to give the liar a truth value. Mm-hmm. And my, like having that antecedent of saying either it's true or it's negation is true is the, um, um, the classical way to represent not having a truth value. Mm-hmm. Um, then, as we noted before, you can turn around and say, but then the liar is true. That's sometimes described as an extra sort of what they sometimes call a revenge problem, that you had a great solution and now it got messed up by this extra problem. Right. The revenge of the people you were like arguing against. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. I actually think that's the basic problem. Mm. Um, I think that's the fundamental problem. Here's the way I like to illustrate it. This is sort of following in the steps of my teacher, Charles Parsons. Mm -hmm. I'm going to change the liar sentence just a little bit. So here's the classical way to think about, or a classical way to think about not having a truth value. Technically, we did it in terms of like true applying or to a sentence in its negation. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. But the intuition is one we talked about several times, which is some sentences don't express propositions. Mm -hmm. So they're not natural truth bearers in some way. Yeah. I'm not metaphysically deeply committed to propositions here, but this is the okay. natural way to think about it. I'm not changing the logic. I'm just saying certain sentences don't have the features that get them truth values. Yeah. So now, if I want to talk about propositions, to say having the features of getting your truth value is expressing a proposition, I'm going to make truth apply to propositions. I'm going to change the sentence. The liar sentence is going to be, this sentence does not express a true proposition. <laughs> Here's the way we reason with that. If it expresses a proposition, then it's true, if and only if it's not true. Mm -hmm. Quick conclusion. The liar sentence does not express a proposition. That's the analog of where we were before. Yeah. Now, the revenge problem, or what I presented as a revenge problem, kicks in here as not a revenge problem. Mm. Just wait. If the liar doesn't express a proposition, um, by basic logic, it does not express a true proposition. Yeah. That means it's true. That yes. means it expresses a true proposition. Okay. We are back in chaos. Yes. So I think that you need several other components to stop this. Okay. Um, you need some, an idea that we label contextualism. Mm -hmm. The idea has got to be roughly that when I said the liar does not express a proposition, I was saying it in one particular context. Okay. okay. And in that context, it was correct. But then reasoning happened, and as the reasoning happened, the context shifted. And in the new context, the liar did manage to express a proposition, in fact, a true one. So we have to see a shift in context there. Okay. okay. That's one component. The other component is a little heavy. Well, all of these are a little heavy, right? So big question there is what, how does the context shift? <laughs> um, um, the other thing is that means that there was a sort of notion of truth as it looked in one context. And then there's a somewhat broader notion of truth as it looks in the next context. Because in the first context, truth was relatively narrow. You couldn't get something that was a true liar. Mm -hmm. In the next context, you can. But notice it's relative to the it, what you're basically saying at the second context is as it looked in the first context, the liar could not express a proposition. Right. Right. Um, so I'm now going from context to context, and this is giving me an ever broader and broader notion of truth, at least truth as it looked down below. <laughs> this is what we usually call a hierarchy, because um, yeah. we've got this open-ended sequence of, to put it loosely, truth predicates. That's not fully right because of all this extra apparatus, but close enough. Mm -hmm. right? There's truth as it looked down in context one, there's truth as it looks in context two, which is bigger. And there's truth is, and this never stops, right? Because anywhere you get, I'll run the same liar paradox argument and I'll get you to jump up one more level. Right. Right. So this is one of the costs or benefits, depending on how you look at it, of the kind of classical approach I like, because we get around what to some people look like revenge problems. We kind of build the phenomenon of revenge in. Mm -hmm. So there is no revenge problem left at least not the standard ones. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody will always come up with something, but there's not the standard ones don't apply because we already built them in and we built in the solution to it. Yeah. Yeah. But the end result is a hierarchical no nature of truth. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, um, is it, um, is, is it higher, higher, higher order, order or just, or just broader, broader level? level? Um, so the tradition, so it's not 
usually described as higher order in the sense of higher order logics. Okay. Um, the classical view version of this, which I think is too restricted, the one from Tarski, said that you had a distinct truth predicate for each level. He meant that syntactically. So this is actually part of the way that he made the liar sentence go away. Because okay. once you realize that there are distinct truth predicates at each level, you can never get full-blown self-reference at any level. Yeah. Um, You'd be equivocating on those because they're different. Yes. Uh, yeah. So my version is not that Tarskian, right? That you okay. do get full-blown self-reference. You don't have a distinct word true as Tarski would have had it. You have the idea that once I have truth, and here the semantic notion comes in, at my higher level, I have so much information about what was going on at the lower levels that I can describe truth that was, was going on down there. Oh, yeah. Um, so that's really hard to do without the semantic apparatus being in play. But once you've got it, you're at a sort of stronger position, right, where you can describe truth as it was going down, on down there. And so you can know that the liar sentence was true down there. Mm -hmm. You just are going to be vulnerable to having to jump up another level to describe what you just said, right? right so, right. that's fantastic. That's and and so what you're saying is that's what happens in the normal in the natural language of just us talking, saying, "Well, is that true? Well, is that true? Is that yeah. true?" Um, it's just a way of fleshing that out, and I think that's that's really helpful because it's um, well, it's helping us understand our natural language. I think of like there's this story about I think it's Sidney Morgan Besser. Uh, talking to uh, jail Austin and he's giving two positives to tell a negative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it's just like, yeah, that's there's natural language is crazy. It's, it's really weird and it's really hard to formalize, but it seems like you're, I, I really like your system. It seems like you're doing a, a, a good job of helping us understand what's going on in the natural language. Yeah. So one thing to be always cautious about, not every time you talk about what, somebody else said, do you have to dump up a whole level? Okay. Um, you only jump up levels when you're forced to. Okay. Um, because otherwise communication would get really, really messy. Yeah. So you and I couldn't be in the same context if, if I wanted to say, oh, the, the previous thing you said was true. Mm. That's too weird. So we <laughs> minimize the jumping. Okay. And that's actually important for sort of Theories that jump all the time, like Tarski suggested, are actually kind of weak and clumsy. Okay. They're really hard to work with. You get a whole lot more strength if you minimize the jumps until you encounter something where you absolutely logically have to. Okay. Uh, and so the idea is that this sort of triggers what I call a sort of reflective process, right? Mm -hmm. When you encounter a problem, it triggers you to kind of think about, I mean, you could do this otherwise, but you only have to when you encounter certain logical problems. You want to sort of look at the semantics of the language as you were just speaking it. Yeah. And doing that moves you up to this new, more powerful context. Um, you don't want to do that anytime somebody says something is true. Okay. Yeah. It would be really clumsy. You, you wouldn't get anywhere, right? So don't. Yeah. So the abstract <laughs> model is we only see these levels where required. Yeah. When, when a problem. You, yeah. With a self-reference probably, right? Is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you can get some, depending on the, the formal system, you can get some non-self-referential versions, but oh, sure, yeah. the liar. Uh, yeah. Without okay. the liar, as far as we know, you could stop at one level and it'd be great.
Yeah. Okay. So there's a there's kind of a razor going on there, saying don't uh, jump up beyond. Uh, yeah. Necessary. Yeah, and I mean that's not quite literally an injunction to people because people don't do this every day. <laughs> yeah, right? so yeah. The sense is sort of what could you extract if you reflected on the semantics of your language as it was running at that moment. Okay. That okay. allows you to move up what I think of as a level. Okay. But you know the real injunction, the the, the abstract one is you know. Levels only, levels only happen when you need them. Yeah. And of yeah. course, people very rarely do this. <laughs> it took us a long time to even get to this point yeah, in the conversation. Maybe yeah. philosophers and some other um, log- logicians do that, but mm-hmm. it's not what you're required to do as you're getting through your day. Your day. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Man, this has been so fantastic. Dr. Glansberg, thanks so much for, for all your time and, and um, sending me all your, all your work to get through. Uh, we didn't get to talk about Davidson. Maybe we could do that in the future because I, I love yeah, Davidson. Your, your paper on him is really fantastic. Oh, thanks. Um, and I'm sure you have uh, more on him as well. But um, thanks for, for all your work. If someone wanted to continue and uh, read some more of your work, like you said, we don't have a whiteboard, but it's, it's a lot easier. Sometimes it's a lot easier to see this in, in proposition stuff. Where can people find your stuff? Um, well, it's all on my webpage, mm-hmm. which is the easiest thing to say. Um, michaelglansberg.org. Wow, I got to plug my webpage. That's nice. There you um, go. <laughs> and just late last night, I was making sure I was making sure that the SSL certificate was in place, so it should work. All right. Um, a couple of books. So with JC and Dave Ripley, Formal Theories of Truth, which is a pretty general introduction to a lot of the issues we were just talking about. Yeah. Um, and the, the the book that I actually asked OUP if they could change the title of, it's called The Handbook of Truth, mm-hmm. which I was very, I eventually realized was somewhat embarrassing because it sounds like a sort of book where you'd find all truths. And that <laughs> quite right. Caught that too. That's we were talking about in the early parts of the discussion are, are covered in much greater detail there. And you can see some non-caricature versions of things like co- coherence theories there. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, that's awesome. I'll put uh, links to those uh, books and to the website in the description of this episode. So uh, be sure to check that out. Um, that's going to have to do it, folks. This has been a, a fantastic conversation. If your head's spinning, don't worry. Listen back to it. Um, and then uh, hopefully we'll be able to continue this conversation in a future time. But that's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God. <laughs>